Good morning. We live in a fallen world where it doesn't take much to realize that there's trouble all around us. A simple click of a button will immediately bombard our minds and our eyes with the many bad things that are taking place all over the world, all over the country, all over our neighborhoods. And it seems like there is no hope. Things are going from bad to worse. This morning we're going to continue with a sermon series that we started a few weeks ago. Based on the letter of James. Where James writes to a group of believers whose world was rocked, whose world was flipped upside down. Some believers who were experienced in trouble. Believers who were forced out of their home, who were forced to leave everything that they had behind and, and go into finding, not knowing what they were going to find. It's a book that, or a letter that James writes to, to offer hope but also a letter that serves as a proof of tests that helps to validate one's faith. And this morning we're going to be looking at the nature and the purpose of trials. James writes his letter to strengthen the faith of those Jewish believers who had been dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution and suffering um, that led to persecution and suffering for their faith. And in this letter we find that these believers were mainly poor and were being oppressed and taken advantage of by wealthy landlords as we will see later on uh, in the series. And we find that in chapter 5 verse 4. And we see that these believers were also being dragged to court by the rich as we will see in chapter 2. And James encourages them to demonstrate good works that proved their faith. And his main point in this section is to make it clear what genuine faith looks like. James says that genuine faith will persevere in time of trouble. So if you're taking notes, James says that genuine faith will persevere in time of trouble. And as we will see, the trials that believers encounter in life are a good thing. Because it helps to prove the genuineness of the believer's faith. And so I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use the Bible in front of you, the Pew Bible. And you can turn to page 1011. And we will go ahead and read our verses for this morning. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So this morning we're going to be looking at four characteristics of genuine faith. Four characteristics of genuine faith. And the first characteristic is that genuine faith produces maturity. And we see that in verses uh, 2 through 4. Genuine faith produces maturity. Now James is a writer who is known for being very direct and to the point. And we see that throughout his letter. He begins with a quick introduction and greeting, and then he jumps right in and he gets to the point and starts by telling his audience how they are to respond to trials. He says there in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if you're like me, something doesn't add up, right? James tells these believers that they're to respond with joy when they're introduced to trials, when they find trials. And the idea that James has in mind here when he writes about meeting trials of various kind is of a person living his or her life while enjoying peace and comfort when all of a sudden he or she experiences a breaking in the pattern of that peace or comfort. This is to put something to the test with the purpose of proving what it's made of, as we will see in James. And James tells these believers, James tells us, to count it all joy. Now, to the natural man, trials and joy don't mix. Our natural inclination when we hear bad news or run into trouble is to not jump with joy and to clap and to laugh, but it is to worry, to fear, to get upset, to grumble, 
maybe even to question God. It doesn't make sense to respond with joy. And the reason for this? Well, James says that we are to respond with joy because this is how uh, trials serve as a way for God to produce Christ-likeness in us or to make us mature and complete. Now, how does this work? Here in verse 3, we read, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so by God's design, God uses trials and difficulties to purify our faith. Not so much to prove if we have faith, because keep in mind James is writing to believers, but God uses trials to purify our faith. And according to James, when faith is tested, it becomes strong, like when one spends time at the gym working out. Tests develop our spiritual muscles so that we become strong like when we lift weights or run or exercise. That's not all. Perseverance is not the main goal. The main goal is to make us perfect and complete or maturing, meaning wholeness of character without defect or flaw. So that we would resemble our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see, when we come across other people, we immediately notice their sinfulness. We, immediately, we can always notice our own sinfulness. And this isn't by God's design. God created everything good. And in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, we have an account of that. That everything that God created was good. As a matter of fact, after he... After he created everything, he looked back and he, he, he looked at his creation and he said that it was very good. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God warned them that if they were to rebel, that they would surely die. And from that moment forward, they began to die. They began to not trust God. They began to point at each other and argue with each other and from from the fall we, we, we get the result of what we're experiencing today and the Bible as a whole when we read it completely we, we see that the Bible is a story of redemption of God redeeming his creation for himself and once God saves his people God begins a process of sanctification of reversing the effects of the fall Praise God that God has taken it upon himself to do this work because if it wasn't for God, we would not seek God. We would continue in our sin. We would continue um, in that condition. So God uses trials to purify our faith, to make us complete, to make us to resemble our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now you're probably thinking, I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. I'm supposed to resemble Christ, but I don't. I can I notice my, my sinfulness. I'm doomed. I can't do it. And if you're thinking that I have good news for you, God knows it. 
And one of the ways that he makes sure that we mature and works us up to perfection is through trials. Now we know that we can't earn our salvation, and we've talked about that in the past. That's something that's based completely on the work of Jesus Christ. But God sees us as perfect because of the work of Christ. And God is making us perfect. And we will experience that perfection when we get to heaven. But here and now, God is working in us to make us perfect. And perfection is not something that we will attain in this world, but it is something that we will attain when we get to heaven. And this is God's plan for His people. So I have a question for you. How do you respond when you meet trials of various kinds? How do you respond when you're hit with a curveball that you weren't expecting? Do you respond with joy? Now, I'm not saying that you should only respond with joy and nothing else. That would be weird, right? Because any one of you who's injured yourself or hurt yourself would know that you feel pain. Pain is real, right? And we see that... um, even God's goodness in giving us these re- our reflexes and pain, it, it, it indicates that something is wrong, that something's not right. We see, we read in, script, in Scripture that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus because of the effects of sin. Jesus taught his disciples to, um, that blessed are the mourn, uh, are those who mourn because they will be comforted. So we see these responses to the effects of sin in Scripture. But genuine faith responds with joy because of the work of God in the believer. What James is getting at is, are we responding with joy in the midst of trials because of what God is doing in us? Genuine faith supernaturally responds with joy because of the purpose of the trial. That is, It knows that God uses trials to purify one's faith, making us more like our Savior. Knowing enables the believer to say, this situation is uncomfortable, but God has not forgotten about me. God is well aware of my circumstances, and I trust that He's using this for my good. Although I don't understand it now, this will help me resemble Christ. And then, this would lead one to turn to Christ and find comfort and joy in Him. Genuine faith knows what God has said about Himself, what God has revealed about Himself. And as we will see later, um, we will see that God is good, a giver of good gifts, and He's unchanging. And therefore, the believer has the ability to evaluate his trials for what they are, And it will lead the believer to respond with joy because of God's work. Genuine faith knows that God doesn't change. It knows that God is sovereign, meaning that there is nothing greater out there that can keep God from accomplishing His goals. This knowing enables the believer to be tested so that he can come to a greater dependence on God. So we see that the testing of our faith produces maturity in the believer. And this leads us to ask the following question. How do we do this? What does this look like in practice? 
And James gives us an example of the way faith endures uh, through trials. And as we continue, I'd like for you to think of the different ways that God uses trials to get us to take our eyes off of the things of this world and to turn our eyes to Him. Because remember that this world is not our home. We're called to keep our eyes on the things above and not on the things below. We're called to hold loosely to the things of this world. And this leads us to the second characteristic of genuine faith. Genuine faith depends on God. And we see that in verses 5 through 8. James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I have another question for you. How many times have you found yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do? All you, you may or may not have options. You're just stuck at a dead end where you just don't know what to do. All you know is that you're stuck and you don't know whether you should go right or left or... And this can show up in different ways. You might have asked, should I go, should I apply to this college or should I apply to that college? Should I apply to grad school? Should I not apply to grad school? Should I put myself in debt? Should I not put myself in debt? Should I quit my job? Should I not quit my job? What should I do now that I don't have a job? Should we have children, or should I adopt? Should I move to another state? Should I pursue this person? Should I not? These questions can go on forever, and I'm sure that you have your own questions that might be coming to mind. And you see, we meet these challenges every day, and we lack the wisdom to make the right choices. When James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, what he's saying is, because you lack wisdom, you should ask God. Because genuine faith depends on God. And according to the Bible, wisdom is more than just head knowledge. It requires more than going home, getting a cup of coffee, reading a book, <coughs> downloading the information, and then applying it. Biblical wisdom is the ability to discern what is true, which then reveals itself by applying that truth to any given situation. And this wisdom is a gift of God. We need wisdom. Many of us feel anxiety or fear when we don't know what to do. We tend to lose sleep a lot of times. To find ourselves in need of wisdom is to come to a point where we see our need to depend on God. And it's at this point that God uses trials to purify our faith from fear and from doubts. And here we find that James tells us that we have 
nothing to fear when we ask God for wisdom. He says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Genuine faith is not afraid to go to God for wisdom because it knows that God will not be angry for asking for wisdom. Now, the opposite of this is to fear God and to not go to Him and to say, no, God is going to rebuke me or God's going to be angry with me if I ask for wisdom. But this is to not believe God and who He's revealed Himself to be. This is to believe that we can do things on our own. Genuine faith, on the other hand, knows that God is a good God who desires to give wisdom to His children. Genuine faith turns to God, trusting Him, trusting that He desires to give us everything that we need because it knows that God is a God, because it knows who God is as He's revealed Himself in His Word. God has revealed Himself to be completely trustworthy and generous, and He has a track record of this, and true faith, genuine faith, knows this. Now we find a condition. James writes that a Christian must ask in faith without doubting. Now, I'm sure we all doubt, right? But what exactly does James mean when he, when he says that one should ask without doubting? The doubt that James is referring to here is the doubt of not knowing where one's faith stands. It's the doubt that says... Should I follow Jesus or should I not follow Jesus? Is Christianity the true way to heaven or is it not? Think back to what Jesus said about the impossibility of serving two masters. Matthew records in in his gospel uh, what Jesus said about such a person who would surely love one master and hate the other. There's this uncertainty of Should I follow Jesus or worship money? Jesus says you can't love both. There's this doubt. And this is the imagery that James provides. He describes the doubter like the wave of the sea that is tossed by the wind, going back and forth, up and down, and never still. This is the picture of faith that is not sure if he believes in God or not. This is faith that is unsure if it wants to submit to Jesus or submit to the world. This kind of faith is one that trusts in self and not in God. In a way, it's a kind of faith that's curious of knowing what God says, but not being interested in putting what God says into practice. It's a faith of being interested in when the trials come, the person takes off. James says that God will not answer these kinds of prayers, these prayers of this doubtful person. And the reason is because God desires that we give Him all of our allegiance and love. He calls us to love Him, love Him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. So genuine faith does not fear turning to God because it knows God. It knows that God will grant wisdom. It knows that God is a giver of good gifts. It also knows not to doubt that God will provide. 
And God, in, in His goodness, He allows us to experience trials so that we turn to Him and cry out for wisdom that we need. This is the way that He strengthens our faith. Trials lead us to practice what we say we believe. It leads us to trust God like we say we do. We wouldn't become mature and complete if we could control everything that happened to us. We wouldn't turn to God. We wouldn't cry out for help. We wouldn't ask for wisdom. We would have no need for God. We would be our own God. So God, in His kindness to us, puts us in circumstances or allows us to face circumstances where we have no option but to trust Him. Think back to a time or times where you had no control over a certain situation. If you look closely or if you remember, um, if you look at the details of what you experienced, I'm sure that you'll be able to see God's fingerprints all over that situation and how He used it for your good to increase your faith. And looking back at it, you say, wow, I can see how God was working. But during the trial, you weren't able to see what was going to happen. But now that you look back, you're able to see clearly, wow, that's what God was doing. And we need to remember, we need to not forget, we need to remember these things. Because when, when we forget these things, it's easier for us to doubt. But when we remember, it's easier for us to remember God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And someone once encouraged me to keep a diary or, yeah, of a record of things that God has done in my life so that I wouldn't forget. So that I could look back and read of God's goodness and kindness to me, to be reminded of His goodness and His faithfulness in spite of my unfaithfulness and my sin. And so I encourage you to do that as well. So let's keep that in mind. Don't forget because it's easy to forget. And this leads us to the next characteristic of genuine faith. Genuine faith boasts in Christ. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. James says, let the, lowly brother in his, uh, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We mentioned earlier that James gets to the point. He doesn't spend too much time describing situations. It's a very practical letter. He says, this is what you do in this situation. Now here we come to a description of two very clear circumstances. We live in a world that has poor people and rich people. And it's important to note that not every person who is poor is poor because of their inability to work or because they're lazy. And at the same time, not everyone who is rich is rich because of their business skills, because of their cleverness. This letter is written to those who had to pack their stuff up and leave. 
Jerusalem because of the persecution that had um, taken place. And it's possible that these people at one point might have been wealthy, but because of the persecution lost everything. And it may be that there were some who were wealthy and were, re um, yeah, who were recently introduced to poverty. And what we know is that poverty and richness or wealth exist even in our world today. Jesus told us that the poor would be among us. Um, and in this letter, James touches on how we treat the poor and the rich. And this is a theme that, that he touches upon um, throughout his letter. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's easy for us to, to look down at the poor and to look at the rich with favor. It's part of our fallen nature to, to esteem the rich and the poor this way. We might not have to say it, but our actions display this. And it's part of our nature, our fallen nature, to fall into temptation of boasting in our riches and to feel embarrassed by our humble circumstances. Why do you think that is? The reason is that this world has taught us or counseled us to find our worth in one's wealth and power. Um, there's an article online. It's titled, Never Mind Facebook Bragging. Brag, yeah, Bragging. Instagram is the most depressing social media network due to... Are po uh, due to the photos that we post. And in this article, this journalist writes about the way that Instagram leads people to depression and jealousy because of the multiple pictures that are posted um, that are telling people how they should define themselves, how we should define ourselves. And when I read this article, I laughed because just a few months ago, not too long ago, really, uh, when I was studying uh, Psalm 1, I was convicted of the way that I was letting social media um, define how I, or wh where I found my identity. A simple scroll of, through Instagram or Facebook was telling me you need to have this car, you need to go to this place, you need to go to this restaurant or try this food. And I was buying into it, yeah, I need that, oh, bookmark, I'm going to go to that place for lunch next week. And I was finding my identity in these things, and the world tells us to find our identity in things. The world tells us to feel good about ourselves because of the car, the kind of car we drive, by the name brands that we wear, the neighborhoods that we live in, or even the titles behind our name. This world tells us to boast in who we are. And if we don't boast in these things, in the, in the things that we have and the things that we own, then we have nothing to boast about. And so here, James writes of another trial, and the trial is the trial of the Christian circumstance. And this trial helps people, or helps Christians, helps believers redefine our value, and it strengthens our faith. 
It redefines our, our source of worth. James says to the poor Christian that real faith does not find its identity in worldly poverty. And to the rich Christian, James says that genuine faith does not find its identity in worldly wealth and status. Instead, the one who possesses genuine faith defines his identity or finds his identity on who God says that he is. He finds his identity in the person of Jesus Christ. This, bo- this faith boasts in his position in Christ as one who has been found by Jesus. If we understand our sinfulness, our, our, our fallenness, we should understand that we have nothing to boast about other than Christ. Because it's Christ's work that has saved us. It's because of what He has done. So genuine faith boasts in Christ. Real faith or genuine faith refuses to find its identity in the values of the world and finds it in Christ. And so, how do you measure your worth? What do you take pride in? Where are your eyes placed? If you're rich, do you find your security in your wealth, in your job, in your power? Or are you finding your identity in Christ? Are you boasting in Christ? Because genuine faith boasts in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're visiting us, I want to draw your attention to verse 11 where it says, where James writes, or starting in verse, the second part of verse 10, Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Do you see how the flower dwindles and dies? Are you putting your faith in your status or in your riches? Do you know that you too will also give an account to God and the things that you find your identity in will not get you into heaven? God will not be impressed by titles or by money, by possessions. As a matter of fact, David wrote that all of the gold and silver of this world belong to God. And the wealth that one possesses, that we possess, is something that God has entrusted us with and we will give an account of it. So what are we finding? Where are we finding our identity? James says in verse 12 that God promises to give the crown of life to those who demonstrate their love for Him through the trials of poverty and the trials of prosperity. We're not to be pursuing the things of this world 
Instead, we're to pursue, pursue God through real faith in Jesus Christ. And then this leads us to our last point. Genuine faith trusts God. And we see that in verses 12 through 18. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Genuine faith has an ongoing love for God and continually trusts in him and perseveres through trials. James helps us to see that genuine faith recognizes trials or identifies trials as coming from God with good purposes. James says that we should never say or we should never believe that God is tempting us to sin. And he says that because God cannot be tempted and God doesn't have the evil intent in him to lead us to temptation. When one is tempted, one shouldn't say, God is tempting me. Genuine faith understands that God sends trials to perfect our faith and never to destroy it. Temptations don't come from God. They rise from within us. They come with a different intent. Temptations try to destroy our faith, but trials strengthen our faith. And James gives two images there in, uh, in these verses. In verse 14, James gives the image of fishing. He writes that when the opportunity of sin presents itself and finds um, within us a desire and hunger for what is offered, this desire tempts us. It lures us to it. It entices us to taste it and then drags us away. It's our own evil desire that leads us to temptation. It's never God who tempts us. And there in verse 15, James then shifts from the image of shift, uh, of fishing to, to the image of a woman giving birth. He says our evil desires are like a woman who gives birth. He says that our desires give birth to sin. And that sin, which can be seen as a baby, when it grows up, it gives birth to, to death, or it grows into death. And this is a result of allowing temptation to conceive and to give birth in the first place. This is where James asks us if we will, be, if we will give in to temptation, or if we will fight it off by turning to Christ. Because genuine faith trusts God and turns to God. So the loss of a job, for example, can be seen as a trial that God allows in a believer's life. 
This trial can tempt us to define ourselves by our circumstances instead of um, defining ourselves by who Christ says that we are, who we are in Christ. It can tempt us to question God's goodness and care for us. Does God really love me? Does He really care about me? The death of a loved one can also be seen as a trial that God allows. And this trial can bring its own temptation. The sinfulness in us can lead us to be tempted to think that God doesn't love us. We can be tempted to doubt God's sovereignty or God's control over all things. But know that trials are meant to strengthen our faith, never to destroy it. Temptations aim to destroy our faith. And they come from within us and never from God. And so James says that real faith resists temptations and instead receives trials as perfect gifts from God. Trials teach us to trust in God and His love for us in Jesus Christ. And James warns us there. He says, My brothers, don't be deceived. Real faith is not deceived by the trials we face. He tells us to not let us be temp- uh, to not let the temptations that come lie to us. To to let us um, be- to not believe those temptations. To not believe the lies that temptations bring. In verse seventeen, James says that real faith trusts in the unchanging character of God, who is perfectly good and perfectly loving, and who has promised good to those who love Him. <coughs> So real faith accepts trial as a gift from God. And in verse 18, we read, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So genuine faith knows and remembers that God has chosen to give us the best gift that we can be given. And that best gift is Jesus Christ. Because man's greatest need is forgiveness of sin. And we find forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. And God has given us that greatest gift. And another great gift that God has given us is the new birth or regeneration. And James writes about that. He says that it's God... Of His own will, He brought us forth by the preaching of the gospel or by the word of truth, by what this world considers foolishness. It is God who drew us to Himself. Remember that God never deceives us. God's word is always true. He gives us new birth. And this is what it means when James writes that we may be a kind of first fruits, meaning proof of the new creation, proof of what God is doing in us here on earth that will take place in heaven. It's a life that was inaugurated by Jesus when he resurrected from the dead. So even now we're experiencing, as I mentioned before, a reversal of the effects of sin. And God is maturing us, making us complete and whole. 
leading us to be a kind of first fruits of the work of God, of what He's doing, and of the complete maturity and the perfection that we will experience when we get to heaven. And so genuine faith turns to God. Genuine faith learns to obey God and turns to Him. Now as believers, we may sometimes struggle and we may sometimes doubt. But faith will never be, our faith will never be destroyed. This is what's known as the perseverance of the saints. We believe that God will never turn away from that God will never turn away from His people, that we will continue to persevere in God through every trial until God glorifies us. And Paul writes about this as a reference. Paul writes in 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there's no, such, uh, there's no temptation that has, take, that has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not permit you to be tempted more than what you are able but will, with every temptation, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to resist it. This doesn't mean that, that once a person is saved, you can go on and live however you want and sin and do whatever you want. Genuine faith, and as we will see throughout the rest of the book of, uh, of James, genuine faith produces works. And not that works saves us, but a fruit of salvation, a fruit of, of our faith is that we will go on and obey God, that we will love God, that we will turn to God. And so the believer's security is based on God, on God's sovereignty, on God's work, because it's God who secures the Christian. And this is based on God's promises and God's power. It's based on God's faithfulness to His covenant. It's also based on Christ's intercession for His people. And we can see that also in the presence of the Spirit of the Spirit in believers that guarantees our salvation because we've been guaranteed our future glory. Our salvation is God's doing and we will take great joy and comfort in this. And genuine faith knows this about God and trusts this about God and because of that it leads the believer to respond with joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of trials because it knows that God is in control and God is at work and He is making us complete. So how are you responding to trials? Remember, God has already given us His Son and new birth in Him. And that's the best thing that we need. And if this is so, then how can we doubt God's love, His goodness? So James writes to remind us or to help us understand what genuine faith looks like. He says that genuine faith is a real faith that trusts in a real Christ. It's faith in a real God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's a faith that acknowledges that we're sinners, that we fall short, that we've rebelled against God and we deserve death. But it's also a faith that trusts in God and in His promises and what He's done to redeem His people by sending His Son Jesus to die on the cross. It's faith that if any of us turn from our sin and turn to Christ, it's faith that believes that we receive God's forgiveness and newness of life. And this is what James writes to us regarding genuine faith in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you because you're a good God who gives good gifts. We thank you that when man rebelled back in the garden, you didn't turn away from us, but instead you took it upon yourself to fix the mess that we put ourselves in. We praise you that you promised to send your son Jesus Christ to come and redeem and save lost and repentant sinners. We praise you that this is your goodness to us and it's all undeserved. And we thank you that being called to you, you call us to trust in you and that trust is something that you work in us, that you build up in us. We thank you that you do this through trials. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself in your word. And you've revealed yourself in our lives. So that we would know and taste your goodness. To know that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises. Lord, I pray that in the temptations that we find ourselves in, whether now or in the future, that we will respond with joy knowing that you are a good God who has promised good to those who love you and that we would respond with joy because you are at work in us and because you are working all things for good. Lord, we thank you for the good gift, the greatest gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and we thank you for your goodness to us through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.